This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking to Merve Emre, a scholar and critic who studies the social dimensions of reading. Some academics think that reading a book just to identify with a character is self-centered and shallow. When you're only reading for characters you can identify with, you're projecting yourself onto the book. But Merve Emre thinks that's unfair. Far from being shallow, who readers do and don't identify with is a complex and nuanced question. Using examples from Freud to Fifty Shades of Grey, Merve shows how identifying with characters can reshape our sense of self and help us better understand the society we live in. Merve Emre, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we're going to talk about identifying with characters and why some people think it's sort of controversial. But you are wanting to sort of think about identification in a more complex and nuanced way. So maybe to get us started, I understand that you identify with a character that some people might be a little bit shocked by. Uh, are we talking about Amy from Gone Girl? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so just for people that don't know Gone Girl, like what, is, what, is, what do we need to know about Amy? Oh, well, I mean, this would be a Spoiler, spoiler for the, alert. yeah, spoiler okay. alert for those who might actually want to read the novel. But she's this incredibly devious and manipulative female sociopath. Okay. Um, and I often joke with my husband that if he doesn't behave, I'm going to gone girl him because she, uh, <laughs> because what she does is she finds out that her husband has been unfaithful and sets up this elaborate plan to frame him for her murder. Mm, um, so she, she fakes she, her she death. She fakes her death, yeah, and and attempts to frame him for it. So it's my most effective domestic threat is that I'm going to gone girl, <laughs> gone girl my husband. But, you know, the the point of all of these embarrassing confessions is that Sorry, I we think, started you off in a very embarrassing I know, way. I know. It's OK. It's OK. I can only redeem myself from here. Um, the point of all of it is that I think, especially as educators, when we think about identification and when we talk to our students about it, we often associate it with terms like relatable we, we think of it as a particularly narcissistic mode of reading that one would want to see oneself or project oneself onto these characters. What I'm interested in is trying to think about the ways in which those debased forms of reading, you know, reading for identification, reading because something is relatable, might actually have pretty complex logics that aren't just sort of purely narcissistic or purely um, purely idiosyncratic. Yeah. So, so with the case of Gone Girl... Could you argue for, you know, something that your identification allows you to bring out of the novel that might not be immediately obvious? Yeah, I mean, so one of my favorite critics, Mary Gateskill, has a really fantastic takedown of Gone Girl. And one of the things she observes about the novel is that it's profoundly sick and depressing to her because it shows how the world and the people who move through it are always wearing these masks that they put on. It feels like in the novel there's actually no such thing as a genuine human interaction or a genuine connection. To me, one of the interesting things about identifying with somebody who is such a masked character is is that it teaches us, especially as women, I think, the ways in which we are always assuming different kinds of social persona in order to lubricate our movement through the world. And I think while that might be, for someone like Gateskill, a sick reality, a twisted reality, it, to me, is nonetheless true. 
and so I think you could make an argument about the way that book conceptualizes or thinks about what one has to do in order to be a woman in a man's world. Well, so I've queued up the cool girl speech oh, from okay. the film. <laughs> yeah. Should we listen to that? Please, and then yes, maybe yes, yes. Can, let's listen to um, it, yeah. I mean, I think that exemplifies exactly what you're describing. Nick loved a girl I was pretending to be. Cool girl. Men always use that, don't they, as their defining compliment. She's a cool girl. Cool girl is hot. Cool girl is game. Cool girl is fun. Cool girl never gets angry at her man. When I met Nick Dunn, I knew he wanted cool girl. And for him, I'll admit, I was willing to try. I wax stripped my pussy raw. I drank canned beer watching Adam Sandler movies. I ate cold pizza and remained a size two. I blew him, semi-regularly. I lived in the moment. I was fucking game. I can't say I didn't enjoy some of it. Nick teased out in me things I didn't know existed. A lightness, a humor, an ease. But I made him smarter, sharper. I inspired him to rise to my level. I forged the man of my dreams. But Nick got lazy. He became someone I did not agree to marry. He found himself a newer, younger, bouncier, cool girl. You think I'd let him destroy me and end up happier than ever? No fucking way. Yeah, that's a great, that's mm-hmm. a great speech. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I love about that is that, you know, she's talking about this sort of intense process of self-creation that she's undergone, but the whole point of it, in part, is to then create him, to make him better, to create the man that she wants. And so together they sort of forge this, like, masked happiness. Yeah. So uh, actually it's not just one character, but this whole universe of... Right, um, right, of creation that's sort of rippling outward from mm. her acts of self-forgery. I mean, I, something that's coming through for me quite strongly is just this idea that... Um, identification is not necessarily total, like it's something Mm -hmm. that's kind of partial or selective Mm -hmm. and that, you know, you in this case seized on certain things you found appealing Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. could relate to, Mm -hmm. but that that doesn't mean that you sort of also commit to being a sociopath or gone girl in your husband. (laughs) Check back in with me in a year. (laughs) Um, No, of course, It's it's not purely absorptive. And I think that's another kind of mistake people make when they talk about it, as if it happens in this total kind of way, as if it really puts blinders on. Um, I'm just going to check this tea to see. Of course, of course. I'll give you some tea. I would love some, I would love some. Thank you. When I ask my students, like, what it is about a character that leads them to identify with that character, often they say things like, well, it's the way that they speak. And then you can look at something like dialogue and you can actually see that there are certain stylistic ticks to the way a particular character speaks and that's what the student is really picking up on. I have students who have a very strange fondness for the way characters in like Henry James's novels speak. This sort of indirect, elusive kind of speech. So Henry James, what was his view of identification? Because I've read some of his books and the, the kind of indirect way that his characters speak to me at least, that 
that wasn't something I identified with. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, what was his own view? Was he wanting to invite identification? Was he trying to resist it? Well, so there's this um, wonderful little moment in James's history in 1905 when he comes to the U.S. on this lecture tour. And he starts giving this talk at women's colleges and culture clubs around the U.S. called The Speech of American Women. And in it, he is basically incredibly critical of the way that he believes American women speak. He says they they bark like dogs, and they neigh like horses, and they oink like pigs. Um, Okay. (laughs) uh, And he, you know, believes that compared to their European counterparts, there is absolutely no tone standard uh, for the speech of American women. And he really wants a series of sort of educative reforms that would allow them to speak in more refined ways, that would allow them to elevate Mm. their speech to the kind of speech that his characters have. Yeah. So in that moment, he's very much sort of bringing his art to the masses to try to figure out how it might offer them a kind of blueprint. But one of the things this requires, at least the way that he's presenting it to the women that he's speaking to, is that there already be a very strong sense of identifying with Henry James's characters in order for women to be attracted to this project. So during this 1905 lecture tour, you see women coming out to him and and saying things like, I think I am Daisy Miller. Okay, that's one of his characters. <laughs> yes, 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 mm. yes. I think I am Daisy Miller. And he's sort of playing off of their sentiments of identification, and he's saying things at these lectures like, perhaps Daisy Miller is out there in this crowd. It's been so long since I've seen her. <laughs> okay. um, so there are yeah. all of these really playful, uh, playful moments where he's encouraging that kind of identification. He has a kind of ironic awareness of what he's doing, but it's not clear that his crowds do. Um, so the women that are listening to him seem to be taking him quite seriously. Yeah. But again, I mean, um, presumably, even if they're taking it seriously, they're, they're modeling themselves on these characters that would only ever be partial if only because like a lot of those Henry James characters end up very, very unhappy or dead. Well, right. And that's the funny <laughs> part about somebody saying, I'm Daisy Miller, right? I mean, it doesn't... Is she one of the ones that dies? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, women, women don't have good fates in novels. They're either, you know, sociopaths or dead. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, can we find a more affirming one? Well, maybe this is a good moment to sort of broaden out the conversation and and think about sort of gender and identification yeah because i mean in the gone girl example that was very much a part of it right and here too mm-hmm. and w- when i think about some of these sort of moral panics about women reading mm-hmm. like the 50 shades of gray books when those right. came out both men and women commentators that i was reading were kind of worried that women would read sort of naively and that they would be sort of, you know, tainted by this reading experience. Like, women, at least today, are imagined to identify more or, like, uncritically. Yeah, it's not even today. So, I mean, this goes back even longer than what I'm about to say, but I was rereading Freud's Dora the other day, his case of hysteria. Mm. Uh, so is that, that's a report on a patient that he had? Exactly. So mm. it's a case history of an 18-year-old girl who comes to him with this mysterious sporadic cough and a loss of voice. And she basically tells him that her neighbor attempted to kiss her 
and Freud links this um, unwanted sexual advance towards which Dora feels disgust and repulsion to these uh, physiological symptoms that she's experiencing. But what's interesting is that her father, who brings her to Freud, tells Freud that he thinks she's making the whole thing up and that she derived these ideas about the unwanted advance because she'd been reading too many sexually explicit novels and had been identifying with them so much so that she created this whole fantasy of what had happened to her. And so it's this incredible moment of gaslighting, right? It's like, no, you've just been reading too much stuff. It's addled your brain. You know, you're crazy. Not like as a woman, you are actually the target of an unwanted sexual advance. Yeah. And so it's interesting the ways in which seeing those logics of identification as necessarily naive and uncritical actually become these tools of disempowerment. So to say that women are going to read Fifty Shades of Grey uncritically, that they're going to be tainted by it, is really a way of disempowering those readers, of saying, you know, that if they're reading for identification, if they're reading because there is some way in which that novel speaks to their desires, then they are in no way self-reflexive or self-aware that that book is just operating on them on some kind of unconscious level. But I bet a lot of women who picked up that book and read it are completely aware of their desires and want to satisfy those desires. And the book is a kind of technology of desire for them. And so it seems like to claim that the book is operating on them in ways that they don't fully recognize is to do a profound disservice to those readers. Yeah. And and what's the connection between identification and identity because we've sort of Mm. seen these examples where well there's there's various examples of sort of women identifying with women but we've also been saying that you know these identifications are always partial Mm -hmm. and you sort of Mm -hmm. select something and not other things Mm -hmm. so what about cases where people seem to be identifying sort of across the lines of identity or identifying with someone that does not share their identity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I actually think this is part of the logic of the female sociopath too, though, right? In Gone Girl, she has made herself into this competitive, hard-edged character. Um, so these are like masculine sense, Yeah, traits. yeah, yeah. So in that novel, there's a pretty explicit nod to the fact that she is taking on these kinds of masculine traits in order to succeed. And another place where we see that, I think, interestingly, is in liberal feminism's lean-in literature, okay. um, where like women are being asked to take on characteristics that are being treated as classically male, like confidence. Yeah, or like pushiness. Or Push, right, bossiness, right? Yeah. So, you know, self-help books like Boss Bitch. Um, <laughs> I are, haven't read that one. <laughs> no, I haven't either. I, I've only seen the title. Um, but, you know, self-help books like Boss Bitch are encouraging women to adopt traits that they characterize as quintessentially male in order to succeed. So then the work of identification becomes this way of actually disavowing identity. On the one hand, identification can work as a way of disciplining Mm. people into dominant cultures. On the other hand, identification can work as this tool of empowerment for those who feel marginalized by those dominant cultures. Well, this has been very validating for me. I feel like it's enabling (laughs) and I'm going to, whatever I read next, I'm just going to let myself identify. Well, it depends what you read. But Mervé Amre, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. 
You can also listen to a bonus clip of Merve discussing the unfair way that identification operated along gender lines in the 2016 U.S. elections. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at HowToReadNow. This episode was recorded by Jess Engerbretson and was produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening. <laughs>